specific claim that Paul makes to the church in Corinth, and it's a claim that he makes elsewhere to uh, other churches he addresses throughout the New Testament, and it's quite, um, it's quite an extraordinary claim that has uh, very interesting applications both to the people he was writing to and us as modern day Christians reading these letters. And I want to kind of explore why he says what he says and what it means, uh, this claim that he makes regarding the temple of the Holy Spirit or a temple for the Holy Spirit. And this is kind of a cool class, kind of a fun one, at least for me putting it together, because um, all three of us teaching this class have kind of been laying a foundation leading up to some of the things that we were talking about today. And we kind of get to put it together. And so if you think of it kind of like a puzzle coming together, we get to put a couple more pieces in and start to see kind of the bigger picture in our discussion of the Holy Spirit, its role in our lives, and this kind of duality that we're living, the flesh versus the spirit, kind of the theme of the whole class. So this is a very uh, thematic and specific class that really ties a lot of the things we've been discussing together. So we'll go ahead and do that. Um, before we begin, um, Seth, I didn't ask you beforehand, but would you mind leading us in a word of prayer? Thank you. Dear God, our Father, we uh, come to you uh, humble to be able to spend this Lord's Day uh, singing praises to you and being able to already observe your Lord's Supper and for what it means to us and for being filled already this morning with humility and with gratitude. I'm patient with Kyle this morning as he uh, relates to us the things that he's prepared and that we have open ears so that we can further uh, try to understand who your Holy Spirit is and what he is able to do for us and his purpose in our lives and recognizing within this class how we are to invite the Holy Spirit to be a living uh, structure uh, for you. I pray that you will be with those who in need of your prayers, there are many in this number who are sick and who have health that's failing, and those who are recovering from surgery. I pray that you will watch over them. I pray that you will be with those who are number who aren't here for decisions that they've made uh, to find somewhere else to be. Uh, and pray that you will bring their hearts back to you. Forgive us our sins, dear God, in Christ's name we pray. <coughs> So, uh, if you want to go ahead and turn over, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul um, is writing to a church that he helped um, start in the city of Corinth. Paul spent about two years here setting up this church, uh, getting it in a, on its feet. And then he moves on, does missionary work elsewhere. And as with many churches, Paul uh, likes to remain in contact. He likes to uh, keep a relationship with the Christians that he's uh, visited and helped uh, start and these churches. And so what happens is he gets reports from people inside the church, letting him know kind of the situation, what's going on in the church, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you could say. And uh, depending on the kind of reports he gets dictates the content that he sends back to these churches. And the church in Corinth, uh, let me ask you guys, how much about Corinth do we know? Like, uh, what, what, what do you know about Corinth? What are some things that you've heard? 
regarding the kind of city it was, or the kind of lives the people of Corinth led. The city as a whole was very ungodly. The, well, sorry, the city as a whole was very ungodly. As a whole, very ungodly, Absolutely. yes. Um, it was known for, um, I guess I would say carnality was kind of what it was um, popular for, as people doing whatever they wanted to, fulfilling the desires of the flesh without thinking too much about it, doing it because they wanted to. Um, if I had to come up with a modern day American equivalent, I would say maybe Las Vegas. Uh, I don't know if that quite gets to it, but this idea that you know, there's kind of no rules, you come here to have fun and just kind of enjoy yourself. Nobody's gonna tell you no here. And so you have um, kind of rampant uh, sexual promiscuity, carnality, people doing whatever they want, and there becomes this uh, turn of phrase back then is that if you called someone a Corinthian, uh, kind of like uh, a Cretan, kind of the same thing, is the specific type of person that would come from a place like Crete or Corinth became its own like uh, title. So you could call someone a Corinthian, and you weren't exactly saying that they came from Corinth, you were describing the type of person they would be kind of maybe their loose moral character or kind of uh, their promiscuity. So it wasn't necessarily a good thing if you were called a Cor uh, Corinthian, especially if you weren't from there. So that's kind of the context is that Paul has these Christians that he cares about and loves in this city of um, vast immorality. And the problem is that this immorality seems to be creeping in and getting inside the lives of these people, and it is detrimental, very detrimental to the church. So Paul's writing here and trying to get them to see that this has got to stop. The, the world outside cannot come in. We cannot bring the flesh in with the spirit, so to speak. So let's go ahead and look at some of the things he says to them. You are still worldly. This is starting in verse 3. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being mere human beings? So right here, what Paul is talking about is the spirit of um, division, or this um, divisiveness in uh, exclusivity to leaders and teachers. And what he's saying here is that the church members seem to be putting a lot of stock in uh, different teachers or different uh, theologians that they've encountered or uh, talked with, perhaps the people that um, individually taught and converted them. And there's kind of these cliques, you could say, or these gangs that are forming. And they're saying, you know, uh, I follow Paul. That's my guy. That's the one uh, who I, I follow. I'm going to listen to what he says. Others will say, like, I'm like Apollos. I, I prefer his teaching. That's the guy who, uh, you know, I'm going to carry my flag for. And Paul is saying, look, when you have this mindset, you are still worldly. The whole point of the church is to be set apart. It's to look different, especially in a place like Corinth. This is your opportunity to stand apart and be a light in the city set on the hill and all that kind of imagery that we're familiar with. 
And when you do this, you're not doing that at all. You're completely failing to be seen as different and you're letting the world overtake you. And um, so what he's saying here, uh, he's gonna go on to say, is that there is an argument against this. And this is um, uh, in chapter six, he, uh, he's gonna go over. But before we do that, I just wanna make a point is that you have this fixation on um, you know, preachers and teachers and I think that can still be something that happens today. That's not a problem exclusive to the um, first century church. And I think it's very <coughs> important that we make sure that we aren't ever in a position where we want to put more emphasis on the people giving the lessons and the word uh, over the word itself. And um, I do think sometimes that, especially in my life, I need to be careful because, you know, we all have people that we really uh, respect who teach the gospel and uh, people who do a very good job presenting these things. And I'm not saying that you can't have a favorite preacher or someone who you like to hear, but when we decide, maybe subconsciously at first, but we decide that this person and the things they are saying have more emphasis and more weight than the source of the things they're saying, the word itself, that's uh, something we need to watch out for. So just a small little lesson there is I don't think this point is specific to what he was talking about um, with these people. So if we go over to chapter 6, uh, what he says here, he kind of elaborates, and he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but who is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So he goes on and he's addressing um, other problems. Um, one of the chief problems, like we talked about, is this carnality and this uh, prostitution. And it is mixed with, um, you know, what's called temple prostitution is kind of said, I kind of said, um, if you think about it in terms of Vegas, we don't really encounter temples the same way they would do back then. But if you think about it like um, casinos in Vegas, there were temples all over the place. And the way they would use these temples is for um, fleshly desires. Is they, part of it was this ritual of um, kind of paganism, is that they had these different gods, these Greek gods of love or fertility and um, harvest. And they would partake in these rituals that involved getting drunk and having a lot of sex, and that's what they did. And a lot of them seemed to think that this was okay because of the state that they were in as Christians. When they learned that they were free from sin through Jesus Christ, they said, okay, well that means, you know, I can do, I can do what I want to do. If there's nothing, you know, that's going to, uh, you know, mark me or taint me, then that means that I can fulfill whatever desire I want. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. 
That is not the case at all. That's not how it works. You're completely missing the point. And then he uses this, um, the, this, this language here to show that we are members of Christ. This is kind of what we've talked about. Um, and that if you are a member of Christ, if you are with Christ, and you're not going to take them and do something carnal, like visit a prostitute, no, that's not what you would do at all. He says, this is something Paul says a lot, never, may it never be, may it not be so, is he says something that is blatantly, should be obviously wrong, you know, he asks this question, and you can kind of see them say, no, of course not. He's like, uh, exactly. So why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing this thing? And so Paul uses um, the idea that we are united in Christ um, as part of, you know, this argument against these things, these uh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And he goes on to say, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. So this argument he uses, that the bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, is an argument that he uses um, back in chapter 3. He uses it again here. And then he also uses it in other places. Uh, primarily, I think, Ephesians 2, you have the church in Ephesus that was dividing along uh, racial and ethnic lines. And he uses this argument here uh, as a reason that they shouldn't do that. He uses it to combat racism. And I think a lot of times we look at these arguments that he uses, especially... Culture today has a tendency to look at the arguments of Paul or the things in the Bible and pick and choose set the ones they want that fits with the agenda today. Um, the things that we like in the Bible tend to have more, I'm trying to think how I say it. So I guess there's a little game that can be played where we pick the parts of the Bible that we want to take the most seriously, and then leave the other parts. So when Paul uses this argument against division in chapter 3, or against racism in chapter 2, a lot of people like that, that Paul does that. But then when Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, don't divide, uh, you know, include everyone, and also don't have sex with someone you're not married to, that's kind of a point where people can kind of pump the brakes and say, this little game, like, you know, oh, Paul didn't mean that, you know, literally, or that was specific for the time period that he was writing in, but make no mistake, Paul says what he means, and he means what he says. This is all inclusive together, is that the reason that you shouldn't do any of these things is as true then as it is now, and it's because who we are is someone that is sharing space with something sacred, something divine, and that is the Holy Spirit. And that comes with responsibility. Sharing in Christ, being a member of Christ, has a weight to it. And we need to make sure that we are fulfilling our responsibility of being a temple. So you have chapter 3, where he talks about collective temple, right? The fact that we come together, and we are a space for God's glory to come and dwell among us. And then in chapter 6, he gets a little more personal and talks about not defiling the body, 
because we as individuals are um, temples for the Holy Spirit. And this kind of gets back into the class that we had about uh, worship in life and uh, the fact that we individually are corner or, or stones, living stones, and we come together uh, to create this new thing, this, uh, this place for the Holy Spirit and the presence of God as well. So I did a lot of talking, I had a lot of points to make, but any questions or comments on anything so far? Anything? Okay. So, let me see. so yeah, Paul's dealing with people um, who just had this, this fundal, fundamental misunderstanding. And so, you know, the, the, there's this dialogue where he's talking to them. And he's saying, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And what he means by that, not necessarily that all things are lawful, but the argument people were using is, hey, if I'm freed from sin, if um, I'm looked at as a new creature in Christ Jesus, then that means that whatever I want to do, I can do. And Paul is saying that's not the way it works. You're thinking about it the wrong way. Christianity isn't playing the game of what can I get away with or how close to the line can I get. Christianity is all about what should I do and what does God want me to do. So you're going at it the wrong way. You're looking at it from the completely wrong end. They're trying to figure out everything that they can do and still be considered a Christian and still be in Christ. And that's not exactly the way that we need to be looking at our own salvation as well as we need to be putting God's will, studying the scriptures, and ascertaining not necessarily what is lawful, but what is good, what is righteous, what is holy, what is going to make us um, a better temple. Uh, how can we be a better member of Christ? How can we build up and contribute to the body in a better way? Um, so there's something, is it in the last one? Uh, something I would want to bring out. So he says in verse 16, for it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And the two will become one flesh is a quote from the Old Testament. Where is that found? Genesis, Genesis right? That harkens back to that first, um, that first marriage, the creation of Adam and Eve brought together and God explicitly has a purpose for marriage, right? Man and wife join together, one, uh, one body, uh, two becoming one, and living in a sort of covenant. That's what marriage is. It's a covenant. And we talked about how the word covenant and the word tabernacle um, are basically the same when you look at Hebrew. And in the first class, what we did, um, or my first class, is we talked about the relationship between God and man and how it was a spiritual relationship, even though there was an earthly component, is that you had the Garden of Eden, right? And that's where it starts out, and you have kind of this overlap of space. You have God dwelling with man in the space that is the garden. And then you have sin that takes that apart and so now God does not dwell with man in the same way that he dwelt in the garden, but he establishes um, different ways that point towards the restoration of that relationship and that space. And one of those ways in the Old Testament was the tabernacle and later the temple. 
This is all reiteration of things we've already talked about. But the idea was that the temple was a place where God could come and fill his presence. And that would be a small semblance of the way that he interacted with uh, man um, in the Garden of Eden, which is the ultimate goal. Is heaven will be the restoration of that relationship. And we're trying to get back to that shared space for uh, eternity is reaching a point where we're always going to be with God, uh, fulfilling that covenant. So marriage, uh, much like all our relationships, is a reflection of the ultimate covenant that we have with God. You know, you can have um, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your friends. If you're married, if you have kids, that's another big one. There's aspects of God's love that are fulfilled various different relationships we have that are all going to ultimately be fulfilled in the relationship we have with God in Christ. And so his point here is that marriage is a microcosm of the relationship you have with Christ. You can even look at it to say that you are married to Christ. That's not a bad way to look at it. Um, there is this uh, idea of there's people who take that and they take it so uh, to heart that they decide um, they're not going to get married because they look at themselves as already married to Christ. And while the gospel doesn't um, say that because you are married to Christ, you can't have a spouse in this life. In fact, it is a rather um, productive uh, you know, semblance of that. Uh, that is something that those people do realize sometimes more than others is that when you are married to someone, you learn a great deal of things. You learn uh, cooperation, patience, uh, selflessness, and all of these things help point you to not only the way that you should care about others and the way you should care about Jesus, but the ways that Jesus cares for you. And like I said, when you have kids, that's another aspect of God's love that becomes uh, open and available for you to access and understand, is that the love that a parent has for a child is once again a microcosm of the love that uh, God has for his children, us. Uh, any questions or comments on anything there? Yes, Drew. I think it's safe to say that if you take your relationship with the Holy Spirit seriously, if you spend time thinking about it, you're, you're being the temple of the Holy Spirit, there's no more compelling argument that can be made against any kind of sin in your life than that one. So it's easy at the times we want to sin to dismiss that idea from our minds. When we do that, we grieve the Holy Spirit who is in us. So we have this relationship, whether it suits us at a given moment or not. And so it compels us to take it seriously, the relationship seriously, and that's where the transformation, I think, fundamentally takes place. And that can be true for a drug addict, it can be true for uh, habitual um, pornography users, it can be useful in our just our day-to-day -day relationships, that all the things that we do should reflect creating the proper environment for the Holy Spirit to dwell. Um, and, and again, it's all about taking it seriously. It's all about not dismissing it. It's about keeping it in the forefront of our minds. 
um, and that that's where the I think the real challenge lies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, taking it seriously, which was a problem that they were struggling with here, is that I think probably some of the logic was, you know, I'm not dismissing or getting rid of God. I'm just adding all these other things into this relationship. And God has always been a jealous God, one that requires exclusivity, just like it would be disrespectful and uh, incredibly discouraging to your spouse if you, you know, brought other people in to your relationship that should only be for that one person. This is Paul's point, exactly. You wouldn't do that. So why are you doing it with your life, with your, um, with your uh, fleshly actions? What you're doing in the body is a reflection of what you're doing in the spirit. And this is exactly what you're doing, is you're defiling the relationship that you have, your marriage covenant with Christ. Um, so, let's see. So we looked at um, these two verses, our base text in 1 Corinthians. Um, so next, we, for the rest of the time, I kind of want to draw it together. We're going to come back to these verses. But like I said, the, what Paul says here about the temple being a place for the Holy Spirit and us being a place for the Holy Spirit was very, um, very significant. So to kind of understand the significance, like I said, we don't really think about temples in the same sense that they would have back then. We're going to look at some context about what the temple was in Paul's time. We're going to talk about Jesus. What did he say and do regarding the temple? What was his relationship with the temple? And then finally, we're going to come back around and look at uh, you know, what exactly the deeper meaning is when Paul says that you are the temple. So starting off, uh, kind of to get an idea of what this temple might have looked like or been like. This is a model created in 1966. Uh, it's a very scaled down model, but this is actually in Jerusalem. You can see it at the Holy Land Museum uh, in modern day Israel. Has anyone been to Israel or um, seen, uh, seen like the Holy Lands or any place around here? No, no one here has seen it? Okay. Um, so apparently I have not been either, but you can go to this museum and they have a huge, it's about the size, around the size of this room, maybe a little bit smaller, but it's this huge scale model of, or scaled down model of what the city of Jerusalem would have looked like back in the first century. And this is um, the best recreation they use writings from the New Testament as well as, um, you know, post-testamental writings like from Josephus and stuff to recreate what they think that the temple would have looked like. So that's kind of to give you an idea. Um, of course, the temple's not standing anymore, but they still have the location. Uh, this is what it looks like in modern-day view. You see that golden dome there. This is a place called the Dome of the Rock. And to modern-day Jews living over there, this is still a very significant, uh, viewed as holy site, a very important part of Judaism and Jewish culture is this uh, location, the Dome of the Rock, or the place of the temple. And you can still see, um, like, from the surrounding area, you can still see, like, some ruins and stuff that would have been uh, standing structures at the time. So... This temple, 
at the time Paul is writing this, around uh, AD 50, was still standing in Jerusalem, and there had been some semblance of a temple there for over a thousand years. Not this exact temple. Uh, this was the one that was built by Herod. Uh, this was a grand, grand, huge thing. We're talking um, just enormous in size. And, I mean, like, people had a hard time believing, you know, when it was talked about the destruction, that the temple would be destroyed, that Jesus says, not one brick will be on another. People had trouble comprehending that just because of how big and massive this thing was. And so you had some form of temple or holy place in Jewish culture for about a thousand years. And once again, that's hard for us to understand. Like I said, if I'm going to draw like a modern American equivalent, you can think about like Washington, D.C., you know, the White House, the Capitol, the National Monument, maybe throw the Statue of Liberty in there. Uh, stuff that represents who we are and our culture and what it means to be an American. But we've only been around, what, about 250 years? That's about a quarter of the time that the Jews have had these monuments or these big uh, places that are very uh, significant and influential to them. So you have this temple in the middle of Jerusalem, and it is the center of Jewish life. If you are a Jew, you go through the temple every single day. You go through the marketplace. You go through um, the different areas. You go into the synagogue. Your whole life basically revolves around the temple. <coughs> and so you have Paul, who was formerly Saul. And what was Paul before uh, his conversion to Christianity? Who was he? He was a Pharisee. Yeah? Yeah, he was a Pharisee. And he's... He's a Jew, yeah, he was a Jewish rabbi, right? We know that he studied at the feet of a very well-respected teacher, Gamaliel, and that he would have understood more than anybody the significance of the temple and what it meant to the Jewish people. But for him to say that the Jewish temple is not the real temple, but the temple is actually these people that aren't getting along in a church in Corinth, that would have really struck people. That would have been significant to say, look, you think this is the temple. No, no, you are the temple. This is the temple. This is the real temple. And this gets to the idea that the temple had really lost its ways, that people's idea of the temple had become uh, tainted. Is that, um, like, this is something you see throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, is that people have this fixation on, this, on the temple, and they begin to isolate it and conflate access to the temple and access to God as the same thing as having God. As long as we have the temple, we can do what we want, very similar to the Israelites and their um, possession of the ark, right? Well, we have the ark, so we're going to be fine. And that was not the case at all. So God, you know, getting frustrated with this mindset, this place that he had intended for reconciliation, um, once again becoming corrupted, and people turning it selfishly into their own ideas, their own things, trying to make God their own thing, something they can have on the side, sends Jesus as a new form of the temple. And Jesus um, and his relation with the temple is what we're going to look at next, is we're going to look at a story. Um, so John... Uh, in the beginning of John, you know the first chapter of John pretty well. There's this verse in the first chapter, 14. The word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelling is kind of an older word. We still use it sometimes, but I don't know if that's really in our modern-day vernacular. When you have people over to your house, you don't say, hi, welcome to my dwelling. You might say, welcome to my home. The word became flesh, Jesus, and made his home among us. And so you have this idea of Jesus being a dwelling place for the relationship with God, but also dwelling among us. So next we're going to look at a quick story, a story we know very well that is told in the next chapter of John, and starts in John 2, verse 13. It says, For when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and, or, sorry, and overturned their tables. And to those selling the doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume you. And that's a quote from uh, Psalm 69. The Jews then responded to him, What sign... Can you show us to prove your authority to do all these things? This is later on in the chapter. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And that's John's little note to you, to let you know that he's not talking about the temple they think he's talking about. He's talking about his body. And we know that that's exactly what happened, right? They killed Jesus, they crucified him, and in three days, the temple was brought back. It was restored. And that temple then went to dwell with God. And remember, Jesus says, I'm sending a helper. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be with you, to guide with you, uh, to guide you, to help you. And so by being in Christ means we have the Holy Spirit it's all connected, right? Being a member, being a member of the body, it's all part of this relationship, this reconciliation. And it's also this idea of sacred space. And so when Jesus does this, another little point I was thinking about when I was looking at the story is this is something that we think of as kind of uncharacteristic of Jesus, right? Jesus is looked at as meek and he has this moment of anger, righteous anger to be sure, but this moment of anger where he makes a whip and he's driving people out of his father's house. And this is the kind of thing that puts the target on his back. Um, this is very, the Gospels make it very clear that this is a very significant turning point in Jesus' ministry because now people are looking at this guy and they want to get rid of him because of this kind of thing he does. And the disciples and the apostles were looking for a Messiah who would do these kinds of things, someone with a little more fury, somebody who would uh, start the uprising, but who were they wanting, you know, the uprising against? Wasn't the Jews and the Jewish culture, it was the Romans. So it's really interesting that the one time Jesus does something that was maybe a little more in line of what people were expecting him to do, he does it the opposite direction. Um, that's just a little note that occurred to me. 
as I was studying this. Um, so you have Jesus, and he makes it very clear that um, his, his body um, is a sort of temple, and that it's going to point towards this greater temple, this greater reconciliation. And so you have the relationship with the Holy Spirit is this idea of sacred place. Garden of Eden, tabernacle, us, and finally us. Us as individuals and us as members of the church. The sacred space. And I kind of think about it like when you're in a roommate situation or if you're married, right, you have a responsibility to take care of the home, right? The places inside the home. Um, the kitchen is a big one, right? You're not going to leave dirty dishes or stuff lying on the counter. Um, why? Because that's gross. Things are going to grow. You're going to get mold and bacteria. It's going to be a bad situation and it's bad for the health. Not just for you, but for the other people living in that situation. If that's true for the kitchen, how much more true is that for the bathroom, right? You want to keep the shower, the toilet clean. Why? Because you have an obligation when you're living with someone else to respect that person and make sure that they have a safe and clean place to live. And if that's true of our friends, our roommates, or our spouses, how much more true of that is that with our relationship with Jesus Christ? Remember, Paul says, your body is not your own. That's an idea that kind of cuts against um, modern thinking, is this idea is that if my body is my own, then there's a whole list of things that I should be able to do. But what if it's not? Paul says it's not. If your body is not just yours, but also shared space with Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit, then you have a responsibility to take care of it and make sure that you are leaving it a holy and sacred place and that you're not letting things that are going to corrupt, grow, and uh, destroy into that shared space. Um, any comments or questions as we close? Um, I think we have a few more minutes. I kind of went through there at the end. Uh, another note I had, uh, kind of interesting backtracking here, is that I was looking at 1 Kings 6, and uh, 1 Kings 6 and 7 is a recounting of Solomon, um, you know, building the temple, and he uses different materials. He uses like cypress and cedar, and it says he also uses um, like pomegranates, and you have all these natural um, like kind of garden imagery being put into the temple. And I thought that was just kind of interesting because that also kind of harkens back to its intention as being a shared space and also kind of an allusion to the Garden of Eden. You can kind of look at the Garden of Eden as a type of temple if you want to look at Adam and Eve as high priests and their charge was to kind of take care of this space, to cultivate it. Um, they were put uh, with the task Right? And that's kind of the same way is that the priest in the Old Testament had tasks and we as priests also have tasks to cultivate and to grow and to help, um, you know, grow the kingdom. Um, so that was another note I thought was interesting. Um, yes, Jay. In the very beginning of the text that you read in 1 Corinthians 3, He talks about uh, them not being ready for solid food. And even now you're not ready. For you are still in the flesh. It seems to me there's the crux of the whole thing. What's our emphasis on? 
Is it on fleshly things, physical, material things? Obviously, they kept the temple clean, I'm sure, but not in a spiritual sense until a sacrifice was made. Blood was, and I can't imagine that being clean, <laughs> uh, a messy thing, but blood spiritually was cleansing the temple for its purpose. Blood has has cleansed our temple for his purpose. So are we focusing on uh, material things, on fleshly things, or are we focusing on the Spirit of God and our, our being tried by fire, the things that we do? Uh, that signifies there's something spiritual not physical that's going on. And I, I think we, we spend a lot of time talking about all the physical things when we all be talking about spiritual things that are going to be tried by fire. Yeah. Wonderful point, yeah. Excellent. Uh, does someone else have something they want to ask? No. Oh, okay. Uh, as always, thank you for your time and attention.